0: Jodcast, a bibliophile's dream, with Adam Avison, James Bamberg, George Bendo, Fiona Healy, Ian McDonald, Benjamin Shaw, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast 2016 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to a Jodcast. In the studio with me today are Adam and Fiona, and visiting us back from Toronto, Christina.
1: Hello. Hello. Hello.
0: <laughs> and Christina, can you tell us about your wild and wonderful adventures in astronomy in Toronto?
1: I can. Uh, yes, yeah, so I've been in Toronto. It was just my one-year anniversary of being in Canada, which is all very exciting. Your anniversary. Now... My anniversary. exactly. <laughs> and now
0: you're not in Canada for the, your anniversary.
1: No, I am ironically in the UK for my anniversary. But yes, it has just been my one-year Canadaversary. anniversary. And yeah, science is going well. I have migrated from stars into Mars and Titan, so that's very exciting. Um, So yeah, that is kind of how things are progressing along. And she's learning how to ski. I am, using the well-tried-and-tested pizza-fries method. (laughs) (laughs) Now, does that actually involve food? No, it involves having your skis straight like fries, and when you want to stop, making them like a wedge shape like a pizza. (laughs) Oh,
2: if, if I ever find myself skiing,
1: I'll try and remember to do that. And is
2: this
3: the same technique that you use when you drive Mars Rovers?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, on to the show. Today, Ian will be answering your astronomical questions. But before that, Ben talks to Jodrell Banks, Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith, about his new book, Eyes on the Sky now available from uh, multiple booksellers.
4: Hello, I'm Ben. I'm joined this time by a very special guest, Jodrell Bank's very own Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith. Sir Graham received his PhD from Cambridge in 1952 after spending time in the war working in radar research. He worked with a pioneering astronomer, Martin Ryle, and is now considered one of the world's leading authorities on radio astronomy. He was director of Jodrell Bank Observatory from 1991 to 1988 and became the 13th Astronomer Royal in 1982, a post he held for eight years. Still at Jodrell Bank, he's Emeritus Professor of Radio Astronomy and remains an active researcher in the Pulsar Group. He's with us today to talk about his new book, Eyes on the Sky, a Spectrum of Telescopes, is a comprehensive tour of the history of observational astronomy from Galileo's beginnings with a small spyglass to the huge number of telescopes we have today monitoring the sky at all wavelengths. If you want to know how a proportional counter works or how ALMA can see new planets forming, this is the book for you. Sir Graham, thanks very much for joining us. What was it that motivated you to write this book?
5: Well, you can't keep on being a frontline researcher for the whole of a long life like I've had. (laughs) So after a while, you begin to concentrate on communicating your subject to other people, telling them how exciting astronomy is. And of course, during my lifetime, astronomy has developed just amazingly. When I started in 1946-47, radio astronomy uh, really didn't exist I joined in with what was called radio science. And we didn't realise then that we were, in fact, um, real pioneers of of radio astronomy. Uh, But it developed that way quite quickly when we started to work on radiation from the sun and, as it turned out, from various other objects, including very great distances, complete galaxies, at enormous distances, were emitting radio waves which we could pick up and find out about what was happening on those galaxies. Now, it's not only radio astronomy. After a, a, a few years at Jodrell, I found myself uh, working at the Royal Greenwich Observatory with the job of established, establishing an optical observatory Overseas, somewhere in the northern hemisphere. So I spent uh, seven years of my career in optical astronomy and looking at the design of telescopes and the organization of an overseas observatory. That was uh, a big step for me, but it's only part of the whole range of telescopes that we now have. See, radio. And optical can be done from the surface of the Earth. Radio all the time and optical when it's not cloudy. But if you get above the atmosphere, then you can extend your observations to a very wide range. In fact, it's the whole spectrum from radio right through to uh, infrared and optical to ultraviolet. In X-ray and gamma rays. Now they all look quite different these telescopes but in fact they're all linked together they're all doing the same job. So what really interested me was how do they do the same job when they're having to work in entirely different ways. That's what led to this particular book.
4: So I think we should probably go back to basics at this point and just ask really what is electromagnetic radiation? What is light as,
5: as we know it to be? That's a pretty fundamental question, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, you can look at light two ways, actually. You can look at it as little part- particles of energy, photons, which um, enter the eye and hit the retina and make a little signal. Or you can say it's like an electric and magnetic wave. Uh, So it's a wave which you can compare with waves on the ocean. And you can um, uh, focus these waves and you can find out where they come from, measure their strength and measure their wavelength, because the the wavelength uh, tells you what colour the light is. Now, the wavelength of light is very much smaller than the wavelength of radio waves. There's um, you know, almost a million factor difference between them, but they're still the same thing. Hmm. They're still electric and magnetic. If you go the other way, then go to x-rays and gamma rays, you can almost forget about the electric and magnetic part of it. But you have to think in terms of the little particles of energy, the photons. Uh, The uh, electromagnetic spectrum is so wide that it actually looks rather different at the two ends. At the short wavelength end, we don't really think of wavelengths. We think of photon energies like bullets.
6: Hmm.
4: It's often a, a misconception, I think, when people talk about When I talk about being here doing radio astronomy, people often assume that I'm actually listening to the sky rather than looking at the sky. And as you say, it's exactly the same thing. And the way I often describe it to people is to think of it like sound, as in you've got sound that you can hear. And if you turn the frequency of that sound up, you end up in ultrasound. And similarly, if you turn the frequency of the light up, you end up in ultraviolet and so on the other way. So it's, I think it's, it is important to really reiterate that in all cases we're looking at light, but light just possibly light that we can't
5: see. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the The funny thing when you're talking about listening to things is that we do actually listen mm. sometimes because the the radio waves sometimes have quite audible signals on, like listening to a radio station. Yeah. Um. And that that is the the subject that I've been interested in for the last 50 years, which is pulsars, because you can actually hear the individual pulses sent out by these extraordinary concentrated stars. Mm. You can also actually do it with light as well, because sometimes uh, the sun, our sun, produces an enormous flare, uh, which is uh, seen as light and it's x-rays and so forth and also very strong radio waves and if you happen to turn your radio antenna which might be the one you use for television towards the sun you can pick up this very strong hissing sound which is the 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 radio waves from the sun
4: i wonder how many people actually uh have the sun cross their TV aerial and not not realise what it is. (laughs) That doesn't
5: happen very
0: often. (laughs)
5: But it's true enough, actually, that the background signal that you get from your TV antenna on on the side of your house um, actually picks up some radio signals, which are the oldest radio signals that we know of that date back to almost the beginning of the universe. It's called the cosmic microwave background. It is a background radio signal which you can actually hear. Mm. Um, It's only a small fraction of the the total noise you get uh, even when there isn't a radio programme.
4: Yeah, I think I heard it was about 1%.
5: Yeah, something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yes, that's right. So yeah. you can't really say, I've been listening to the beginning of the universe. But <laughs> it, it's there in the background.
4: Yeah. Of course, it's not something you see on TVs so often these days because most just tune automatically and you never see that static no, anymore, which is a shame. No, that's,
5: that's right. You press the button and it tunes into about 80 different stations. <laughs> <laughs> and there isn't one of them which is called blank, no, no. station. No. As you did. You would just hear this background noise.
4: Yeah. It used to be a thing I told people back in the day when you had the, the, the old cathode ray tube TVs that, you know... You could see it. You can see a little bit of the Big Bang in that, but of <laughs> course now I have to just impress people with microwave ovens and peritons, so it's... Uh... Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's go right back to the beginning of astronomy then, as, as we know it today. So Galileo is, is widely credited as, as being the first person to turn a telescope up to the sky... I think that's a
5: perfectly legitimate, fair and proper assessment of Galileo. He was uh, an, an extraordinary character. He was a professor of mathematics, but he was interested in um, experimenting. He, he didn't just take the ancient texts and sit down and work out um, what, uh, what they were saying without bothering to look at the sky. He wanted actually to look at the sky. Mm. So when he heard of the invention of the telescope, which uh, came from the Netherlands apparently, uh, he decided that he would build one. And so he built a little telescope and then he decided he wanted a telescope with more magnification. So he built one with more magnification. He was using quite small lenses, the kind of thing you would use in, in your own glasses, and uh, he was using a, a concave lens, which you would use for short sight and and, uh, and uh, a convex lens, and uh, putting them together. So in the end, he had to grind his own to get a strong enough lens to get big magnification. That's what he did. And when he had opened the sky by bothering to look at it, he saw the most amazing things. He, he looked at the moon and he found that the surface of the moon was not just a, a, a flat, smooth surface but had mountains on it. Um, and then the most important thing was he looked at Jupiter and he saw that there were little stars close to it. And blow me, the little stars moved almost from hour to hour, certainly from night to night. And they were the first... Planets. Uh, the, Jupiter was the first planet which was shown to have real moons. And when it got that, it was so exciting that he wrote it up in a little book which became an absolutely classical. It was called The Sidereal Messenger. <laughs> and the message was that the sky is not just a painted sphere that we're in the middle of looking at the surface of, it was a real Deep three dimensional um, universe to, to, to look at. That was uh, the real breakthrough.
4: He had some trouble convincing the rest of the elite to well, so think that's what he was saying. Well, um, I right, think, like I? Quite,
5: a lot of, quite a lot of us astronomers, he was a, uh, an awkward character as well as being a determined <laughs> character. So when he knew uh, the answer to an ancient problem, although it was very far from the established uh, religious point of view, <coughs> he just pronounced it and he wasn't going to have any nonsense. Mm. Uh, so uh, from being in a position of uh, being in, in, in good favor with the church and with the, uh, the aristocracy, he actually put himself too far out on a limb and had to make a public recantation uh, because he, he deduced that the Earth was not at the centre of the universe. Um, the sun was at the centre of a solar system, and who knows what else would be discovered? So he was open-minded about that, whereas the standard point of view was pretty close, closed-minded. Mm-hmm. That's a lesson we could all learn.
4: Indeed, how did he? How did he discover that the sun was at the centre?
5: Well, that goes back to Copernicus. Really, um, Copernicus had said, "Look, if you want to explain these motions of the planets in the sky, the best way of doing it is to say they're all moving round the sun rather than moving round the earth." Mm. So that that was um, that was there as a as a possibility and a quite widely distributed idea. So that um, he would know about that. And he would say, "Gosh, Copernicus was right. you know So this, whole, I suppose, quite often happens when you get a theorist Copernicus was, after all, uh, a theorist he wasn't observing, um, who pronounces some idea which may seem crazy, um, certainly iconoclastic. Mm. Uh, then observations come along and you say, "Well, maybe, maybe he was right after all." Yeah. And that's what uh, Galileo did. Eventually he was vindicated. Um, so other
4: people came along shortly after Galileo had, had made these telescopes and began refining his designs. What wow. were some of those early developments? Oh Well, that, that's what you...
5: I was particularly interested in, which, which set me going on, on the book. <laughs> um, uh, amateur astronomers these days use uh, lovely telescopes from six-inch diameter upwards, and they know all about the optics of the telescope. But the big uh, move was really done by Newton, I think, when he made the first reflecting telescope. He put a concave mirror at the bottom end of a tube, and uh, he then was able to focus light over quite a a large diameter. Well, people developed it. Herschel and others developed the diameters. Mm. But the great thing was that uh, you could use a mirror for any colour of light and it would reflect in just the same way, whereas a a lens uh, has got what's called chromatic aberration, which means that uh, light of different colours gets focused in a different way and you can't make such good images. All the big telescopes these days are reflecting telescopes, a bit like Newton's, except that Newton's was, you know, a couple of inches in diameter, and what we're talking about now is telescopes 10 metres in diameter. 10 metres! A big, big mirror. And uh, the European very large telescope, which is being uh, built now, will be almost... 40 meters in diameter that's enormous it is enormous there must be some serious technical
4: technical challenges that come
5: about oh well there certainly certainly are you can't build a mirror like that all in one piece mm. you have to make it in segments which you put together and then you have to adjust them so that the whole thing is the right shape and that is the, the one of the major technical advances. And the next one is to say, when we're looking at the sky with this large telescope, through the the atmosphere, even where the sky is very clear, you get a kind of a a twinkling of the stars, which turns out to be uh, a random sort of refraction in the atmosphere. And you can actually improve on that if you can adjust the shape of your mirror. Now, that's a most remarkable thing. That's known as active optics. Mm. And, gosh, that's a a technique which couldn't have been imagined half a century ago. But now most big telescopes use that. They must have really fast... So each
4: individual segment of the mirror moves individually in response to what's happening in the atmosphere? uh, Yes,
5: uh, yes and no. Uh, You can't actually move the big segments of a big mirror fast enough. So what you do is you have a a secondary mirror, which is a lot smaller, part of the focusing system, and that's also either divided up into little bits or it's flexible with um, actuators behind which push it. and They have to act very fast. So, that if you can find out what's happening to the light, the wavefront as we call it, as it reaches the telescope, then you can push the little mirror, uh, deform it, so that it actually counteracts the distortions in the wavefront. Mm. So the atmosphere is busy trying to distort it, and you're trying to put it back again. And if you're clever enough and can make the thing, React fast enough, then you can get images which are near perfect, uh, corresponding to the enormous diameter. That is happening with big telescopes now. Mm. So you know there are a lot of technical things happening, even in uh, light, which goes back to Galileo. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of things happening in radio, which is my particular field. But if you look also at X-rays. There are some wonderful X-ray telescopes working, which use a, a, some of which use mirrors, which look really rather different from the ordinary mirrors. But if you go beyond that to gamma rays, then you can't use mirrors at all. Uh, and you have to detect these photons like separate bullets. Hmm. Uh, and you have a, a big tank which is filled with detectors and you trace the bullets through the tank and it hits one detector after another, so you can find out where it came from yeah and um, this uh, is happening in gamma ray telescopes now and is producing wonderful results uh, all sorts of ob- separate objects can be examined in this in this way yeah. so it's it would have been unimaginable half a century ago but it is now all actually happening.
4: It does make you wonder what's coming in the next half a century, doesn't it?
5: Yeah.
4: Um, so when did it become clear that the white light that these early astronomers, astronomers were looking at from the stars or from whatever object they were looking at when did it become clear that they were actually looking at lots of different wavelengths?
5: Uh, The idea that uh, light was made up of different colours comes in really quite early, Um, but I think the most important step there was when it it was discovered that, that beyond the optical spectrum there was still energy coming, particularly beyond the red end of the spectrum there was still some energy coming, which we couldn't see. Mm. And that was the infrared. And the infrared turned out to be quite a substantial part of the spectrum, which our eyes wouldn't work at. But you could make um, cameras, things like the cameras which you use in your mobile telephone, which would actually work at infrared. So that there was a... uh, a branch of astronomy, which was a fairly straightforward move from what we could do already with visible light. The other wavelength ranges, um, radio all the way through to gamma, uh, are are really quite outside our normal uh, visible spectrum. We we can't just gaze up at the sky and detect X-rays. That doesn't work.
4: (laughs) No, there's a big atmosphere in the way for a start. Yeah. How does an infrared detector actually work is it is it the, basically the same as an optical detector but with a few
5: settings adjusted That's right yes um the uh, the detector in your camera is what's called a CCD charge coupled detector but it works um like any other solid state device it's got um crystals which have um electrons in it which are forced to be in certain energy levels and if you can make an electron jump from one energy level to another uh, you can actually uh, detect this as an electrical signal now to make the electron jump from one energy layer to another it has to receive uh, some energy from outside and that is a photon A bundle of energy hits it. And that's what's happening in your camera all the time. It's just amazing. We we take it for granted. You just point your camera at something, a picture comes out. But what's happening uh, is every little picture element uh, contains these little detectors. And in every picture element, photons are arriving, making electrons jump from one energy level to another and producing a little electrical signal. And so that electrical signal is fed into circuits, the little computer inside your telephone, and can be sent down the telephone line or just displayed on a screen.
7: Hmm.
5: Now, if you want to do that in the infrared, uh, you've got to be a bit careful, because the energy levels uh, have to be rather close to one another. And it's not easy to make a device where the energy levels are close enough to take the low-energy photons of the infrared. And if you do make that, then you tend to get a lot of random signals. You can help that by cooling it, actually. So a lot of the infrared telescopes have cooling systems, Mm. and um, the detectors are taken down to a few degrees absolute. Fortunately, you don't have to do that in your mobile phone.
4: No, mm. so that presumably puts a limited lifespan on on the teles- the infrared telescopes we have in space.
5: Yes, um, that used to be true, but now um, we can now build refrigerators which take you down to um, about one degree absolute, astonishingly, mm. which are, are just a continuous cycle, and you don't have to keep feeding them with liquid helium or anything like that. Mm. Um, they're, it's amazing how well they work and how well they go on working mm. because when you launch something into space you, you've got to have it fairly reliable so that you can be sure that your telescope will work for a year or two or ten years or whatever the lifetime is that's difficult yeah,
4: very so we now have, from Galileo, we now have Hubble and Hubble's coming to the end of its life I assume, and then James Webb. Yes, James Webb. He's, he's hailed as a successor uh, to yeah. Hubble, but it works at a slightly different range doesn't it? It works into the infrared as well as the optical. Yes,
5: it would work optically, but the main thing is to go into this infrared region and push the infrared wavelengths beyond what we can receive uh, on Earth because the although the atmosphere does let through some infrared you can't go very far into it, and the uh, James Webb will will work to longer infrared wavelengths as uh, smaller photon and images and extend the, the spectrum uh, quite considerably so that uh, not only can it um, produce better images uh, in the wavelengths that we can use on Earth but it will extend it into other another part of the spectrum. It's also a pretty big object too mm. because it's so big that you can't launch this mirror all in one piece. You have to fold it up and stuff it into the uh, the launcher in such a way that when the launcher puts it into space, it can unfold and click into the right configuration like an umbrella opening. Yeah. And when you've done that, you have to be sure that it's right. So you have to do some tests on it to find what shape it actually is. And then you've got little actuators which can push it into the right shape. That's going to be an amazing achievement when they do it. Yes. It'll be, what's it, a couple of years from now before it's in space. But we shall all be watching that with great interest. Will this be the
4: same type of telescope as Hubble in that you can go up into space and actually work on it? Or is it going to be in an orbit that's somewhat oh, inaccessible? Oh, you,
5: uh, uh, you can't do the same thing. Hubble, f- fortunately, was in a a fairly low orbit by modern, by present-day standards and the same orbit that you can use for space station and for the launch vehicles and so on. So that when Hubble, as it turned out, uh, had a fault built into it, uh, it was possible to go and visit it and put the fault right.
7: Mm.
5: Now, James Webb won't be like that. It's going to be um, very large distances, which are known as um, a Lagrange point, which is so far away that it is just in, out of the question for anybody to go and visit it. But it will be so far away that it will be able to operate without being interfered with by the uh, uh, any man-made signals, of course, but also from signals from the sun and from the Earth, and it'll um, operate continuously, uh, gazing away from the solar system into the uh, interference-free environment. It'll um, it'll be a pretty good telescope.
4: So, if you were to draw a line from James Webb. So the sun, the earth would be in the centre of that line. That's so, right, that the, that's right, so the sun's yes, constantly shielded right. by and the earth. it.
5: And at that distance, uh, then the, the, that line stays, that alignment stays, um, mm. because the um, orbit uh, round the, uh, the earth and the sun is so timed that that uh, alignment is, is, is maintained.
4: So it'll stay in lockstep with the sun and the earth... Yes. ...always facing away.
5: That's right, yes. There are other Lagrange points, but that's the one which is used these days by uh, quite a number of satellites now. There's um, uh, there's a uh, a rather wonderful one, which we don't hear much about yet, but we will do, called Gaia. That's uh, entirely optical, but it is taking photographs of the sky... With a, a fantastic camera that can cover a very wide region of the sky in great detail and go on and on doing it over and over again, so that will be able to record changes in objects in the sky um, and uh, it's it's busy taking measurements now and it soon we shall hear whether the sequence of measurements has been able to detect. Movements and changes of intensity. Apparently, it's all working well, and it's going to transform our picture of the sky in uh, ordinary visible wavelengths.
4: So, if I were to put some infrared goggles on and look through, look through them in the same way that Spitzer will be able to, what would I? What sort of sky would I be seeing? What sort of objects would I be looking at?
5: Ah, when you're look when you're um, <coughs> looking at the. Infrared sky, like that, uh, then you see objects which are warm or hot, but mainly objects which are just warm and um, there are uh, there are galaxies which are warm and in, uh, emit infrared there are clouds in our own galaxy which are warm and emit infrared but the um, the ordinary stars which we see are so hot that they're emitting optical, visible light mainly. Now, the infrared doesn't concentrate on those. So instead of seeing the familiar stars of the constellations, you will see a a background of uh, infrared radiation from clouds and from uh, various rather interesting objects which are not usually uh, detectable.
4: So going the other way, past back, back through optical and out towards the higher energies, what was the first ultraviolet astronomy? There's only
5: a rather narrow range of wavelengths uh, at the ultraviolet end of the spectrum, uh, but you can uh, extend a, a bit from the ground. The... The first observations in the ultraviolet had to be done from space. And they were done from uh, not satellites but from rockets uh, which first showed that there were objects producing strong ultraviolet light. And uh, perhaps the most interesting part of the ultraviolet light is the spectral lines. We're familiar with spectral lines in the optical spectrum. You get a sodium light line from streetlights for example but the uh, if you go into the ultraviolet you're talking about much much higher energies and spectral lines with shorter wavelengths and what you can see is for example in the light from the sun you can get um, spectral lines from iron, iron atoms which are in the Uh, sun in the corona of the sun and they're clearly very hot because they've been highly ionized now those lines were uh, detected in rocket flights um, and were obviously so uh, interesting and important that there were fairly soon there were satellites uh, developed which could use ultraviolet light Mm. and that's It's quite an interesting trick. The detectors are not too difficult because of the high-energy photons, but it's more difficult to use lenses because they don't work very well as ultraviolet. You can do it all with mirrors. So you'll get telescopes which are practically all mirrors and then these high-energy detectors. They work pretty well. So going up a
4: little bit higher still towards X-rays, what type of objects in the universe emit at X-ray
5: frequencies? Remarkably, the universe has got a lot of very high-energy objects, very hot, very energetic objects. Uh, again, the ones that I'm interested in, pulsars, uh, manage to produce uh, X-rays pretty well, as, um, as well as they do optical, light and radio, so that if you can get a, a working X-ray telescope uh, circling around the Earth, uh, you can pick up a lot of these individual point-like objects. And if you look at the the light, or rather the X-rays which are coming from them, you can find it's pulsed in the same way as the radio waves from them are pulsed. Um, so that they are X-ray pulsars. They're often, in fact usually, the same objects which are producing X-rays as well as radio But X-rays also come from uh, very distant parts of the universe, galaxies Mm. and clusters of galaxies, because inside clusters of galaxies is not empty space, but um, an intergalactic medium, in other words, ionized gas between the galaxies, which is hot, Mm. and it's hot enough to produce X-rays. Nobody could... um, detect this hot gas before but as soon as you'd got x-ray telescopes working then you could find out what was happening in the centers centers of galaxies yeah. and the clusters of galaxies this is actually very interesting in the present day uh, investigations of the history of the universe uh, cosmology because we're now uh, investigating Galaxies which formed in the very early days of the universe? And did they form individually or did they form uh, as clusters of galaxies? Was it a big hot cloud which formed a whole lot of galaxies? Or did they form individually and then clump into galaxy clusters afterwards? The answer to that depends a lot on X ray observations of this um, intergalactic gas which is a, a very important uh, part of the universe
4: i've heard i've seen some images of galaxy clusters um comparing the optical and the x-ray and in the optical you can you can pick out each individual galaxy in the cluster nicely but you then look to the x-ray and it just looks like an amorphous blob and you can just where you're just seeing the emission from the hot gas that's drowning out the individual galaxies
5: that's right well you see the, the, as you were saying with the infrared when you start looking at a different part of the spectrum you see different things mm. the the familiar sky of the bright stars is is no longer uh, prominent and what you see instead is uh, the, the the for the um, x-rays you see the the hot gas which doesn't show up optically at all so x-ray telescopes
4: we've touched a little bit on how they work you have a, a few Layers and you can you can track a photon as it goes through those layers. Yeah. How is the photon itself actually detected?
5: Well, what's happening inside that is that there's um, a lens which is tiny uh, for your camera; it's only a millimetre or two across, uh, which focuses onto a, a little flat um, array of detectors. I say a little array; it might have um, a million separate detectors in it and the uh, the photons uh, make a, a picture if you like well the lens focuses a picture onto this array and each element of the array responds to photons and produces uh, an electrical signal and then you the, the clever bit is how you um, make these uh, pictures into a sequence of electro- electrical signals mm. so that you can actually store it in a data stick or send it down the telephone line or uh, through a, a, a radio link.
4: Going higher still into, into gamma-ray astronomy, we see a, an even more different picture of the universe. Where is the dividing line between X-rays and gamma rays?
5: Oh, that's a, it's not a very clear dividing line. Um, if, you, if you work up through the energy spectrum, we're starting with light, you go to ultraviolet, and then beyond that is X-rays. Now, in the lower energy X-rays, you can still use mirrors, and you can still have telescopes, which look not all that different from optical telescopes. The, the mirrors uh, tend to be rather a different shape but you can still use mirrors, after a certain energy, Energy. if you get above a certain energy, the mirrors don't work at all. They don't reflect. The photons just go through them instead. Now that technically is at an energy of about oh, 10 kilovolts or so. Um, beyond that, uh, you still talk of x-rays about another factor of 10 or so in energy. Um, you have to use techniques which are diver- really measuring these individual photons and, mm. and how they behave. A bit like um, the particle physicists at, at CERN, you know, or, or in any uh, high-energy physics lab. Mm. You're dealing with high-energy particles. But where that merges into gamma rays it really hasn't got a very clear answer. But the gamma rays then take over and they go factors of um, uh, a thousand or more up in energy. And uh, you still have to use similar techniques, but of course it isn't quite the same. Um, and so you uh, rather remarkably, you tend to uh, look to the high-energy physicists to find out how to build your telescopes. Mm. It's a collaboration in the end. So did, does it become progressively more difficult
4: to focus an image the higher in energy you go? Yeah, that's right. You can't actually
5: focus gamma rays at all. You, you have a big uh, tank. It was originally done with a big tank of gas, and the, a photon going through that gas would leave a trail of ionisation,
7: hmm.
5: like a meteor going across the sky. And if you can detect where that... Um, line of ionization is that tells you where the photon came from these days uh, it isn't a tank of gas it's a um, a series of of layers of detectors which the photons go through one after another and if you can measure exactly where the photon goes through each layer Mm. uh, then you can find out again where it comes from and you can also measure its energy which is very important so that the satellite is actually just busy collecting photons and uh, sending uh, information about where they hit these detectors. Mm. and Then eventually you can put it together and say, aha, we've got a lot of photons from the same direction, that must be an individual object. So it's um, rather a different way of going about astronomy. That's... I think what's the most interesting thing to me about this range of techniques, mm. they all do the same job in the end, but it has to be quite a lot different.
4: In terms of actually getting a position from an object in, in these, uh, these high energies, how well can a, a gamma-ray telescope actually pinpoint the source of an object on the sky?
5: Well, it's astonishing. It can do nearly as well as a small optical telescope. Um, You know, you talk about um, minutes of arc accuracy, Mm. uh, which is just amazing. Uh, Optical telescopes now can go down to, astonishingly, small um, accuracies, real high precision down to... um, not just an arc second, but a milli arc second is the unit they use. Mm. This is getting really astonishingly accurate. A radio radio can do the same from the surface of the Earth. The radio astronomers are measuring down accuracy of uh, down to uh, oh, milli arc seconds for for positions of objects. I
4: want to go back down to to radio astronomy briefly so we're going back right down to the lowest energy part of the spectrum the longest wavelength but the first radio telescopes were a very different design to the type of dishes we're looking at here through the window
5: That's right What yes. were
4: those first radio telescopes like?
5: <laughs> um, the design of telesco- of radio telescopes I think goes back to early radar installations on aircraft The first uh, installations of radar on fighter aircraft used the uh, the kind of antenna which was called a, a Yagi which is the, the, if you like the old-fashioned television uh, antenna which you often s- still have before people had dishes mm. and those were the kind of things which were installed for radar on aircraft and when... Um, Martin Ryle and people like him, uh, from uh, with experience in the war, uh, came back to university. They set up very similar apparatus using the same Yagi uh, antennas to pick up signals from the sun initially. Um, and so when you wanted bigger collecting areas, you just built more of the Yagis and put them all together. And we... Uh, Spent a lot of time building dipoles and yagis and stringing them together with bits of wire. And it wasn't until quite some time later that we were able to use dishes. The funny thing is, actually, that uh, we used some German radar dishes which were um, 27 feet in diameter. They were called Wurzburg. And those were the first dishes that we used. I used them when I was. Uh, measuring accurate positions of radio sources uh, Hmm. at Cambridge. So there was a transition from dipoles, yagis into dishes, um, which was quite slow, actually. It was some time before the big dishes were built. The Jodrell Bank one, of course, which first worked in 1957, was the first big example. There's a new one now, a fascinating one in China, which is 500 metres in diameter. You can't steer it round the sky. It's lying on its back, gazing upwards. But it is the biggest dish. Well, the biggest dish that we're likely to build ever, I think.
4: Mm. Yeah, it's not easy to build very large dishes, really. I mean, nowadays, more often what you see when new telescopes are built is lots of smaller antennae put together. So the only reason, really, that that FAST or the 500 metre aperture Spherical Telescope in China is is able to be that big is because it's sitting in a huge caldera. You certainly couldn't steer something like that without risking another Green Bank episode, I suppose, where it would just fall over.
5: That's right, yes. Well, you certainly can't build a steerable telescope like that, at that sort of size. But this will be an extremely useful, quite unique instrument. Mm. Now, the... Um, The other way to go, as you say, is to build a number of smaller telescopes, identical ones perhaps, and um, connect them together so they all work work in one piece. And that is what's happening with what's called the Square Kilometre Array. And this is an array which builds up a, a, a telescope which collects radio waves over a square kilometre. That's an enormous area. So that um, you can't build it all in one, but you build it in separate bits. Mm. And when you do that, you you can make a decision how you're going to arrange them on the ground. And it turns out to be a real advantage to have some of them close together, but some of them much further apart. So this square kilometre array will consist of a number of dishes which will be, um, and and that's hundreds of dishes actually, which will be spread out over in areas of um, a few kilometres, for a lot of them, mm-hmm. and then many of them kind of outliers, which can be in another country so far away, a thousand, up to a thousand kilometres away. In fact, the SKA, Square Kilometre Array, has now uh, got two different ways of developing and the, actually they're in two different countries there's um, the SKA South Africa which has got dishes like I was describing mm-hmm. but there's another one in Australia which is the SKA low frequency or long wavelength which uses um, antennas rather like the YAGIs that I was talking about earlier so they will be appropriate to wavelengths uh, which can be around around one metre wavelength whereas the dishes will be appropriate for a centimetre or ten centimetres wavelength Mm. they'll be uh, working in much the same way on much the same objects and in fact they can be combined together but um, uh, one will be SKA low that's Australia and the other one's SKA high in South Africa
4: these days, there are still some telescopes, uh, even after even after dishes came onto the scene, there are still some telescopes that don't look like dishes at all. I mean, here we've got the uh, Manchester University Student Telescope, which is still an array of TV aerials. And actually, yeah. the, the array that pulsars were discovered on, you could be forgiven for not recognising that as a telescope at all.
5: That's right. It doesn't look like a telescope. That actually is following much more the lines of the... Uh, Dipoles or Yagi antennas. Mm. Um, that one was designed for um, the long wavelength end of the um, uh, radio spectrum, and in fact, the way to do that is to build uh, a whole lot of wire dipoles, and they have to be long to pick up the long radio waves. So, the way that um, that was built in Cambridge deliberately to pick up the long radio waves was to put up a whole lot of wooden poles and string wires between them until you'd covered several acres of area. So that was a a very large collecting area Mm. made entirely out of dipoles, all strung together and connected together. Mm. And it was that array which had enough sensitivity to first detect that there were in fact these uh, regular pulsed signals from pulsars. So that was um, uh, the, really the supreme example of uh, Dipole's long-wavelength radio.
4: I remember a, a quote from Jocelyn Bell Burnell that said by the end of the second year of a PhD she could certainly swing a sledgehammer and she was involved in the construction of that telescope. That's, itself. that's
5: right. That was a kind of a, a tradition in the early days. We didn't have much money so that um, we, we built all our own stuff. Mm. And um, uh, I was certainly in, involved in, the, in all that business. We, we made um, arrays of dipoles, which were um, you know, huge by uh, the, the uh, standards of that time, yeah. but tiny by <laughs> modern things. And we did them by uh, bashing angle iron into the ground and stringing wires across. And um, it was uh, it was a wonderful thing to do, actually. You made your own telescope, get your own uh, yeah. apparatus working, and lo and behold, out come the discoveries. Yeah. It's uh, very exciting.
4: It must be really satisfying knowing that your discoveries have been made on something that you've actually constructed with your own hands. Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah.
5: Now, it, um, we didn't realise how lucky we were, really, because uh, an individual can can uh, build a telescope, take observations, write a thesis, get a PhD, you know, as just as one person. Mm. And uh, these days, if you look at something uh, really new, uh, like, for example, gravitational waves, uh, a paper came out only a week or two ago describing the way in which the gravitational waves were detected. And there were a thousand authors on this paper Mm. Because so many people were deeply involved in uh, construct- well, devising, constructing, using, interpreting, uh, all, all the way through. And you can't pick out one person. It would be quite unfair to do so. So there's a paper with a thousand authors. There must be
4: some politics involved in choosing the first author on the paper.
5: Ah, well, <laughs> yes. It depends. If you, The simplest way is to do it in alphabetical order
7: mm.
5: now, if you look at the cosmic ray telescope, there are papers with several hundred authors but uh, remarkably amongst them is a, a chap called Abdo, whose name begins with a
7: mm.
5: not only that he has two initials a a <laughs> so if you look <laughs> if you look at the references to these papers of the Cosmic Ray Telescope you will find it is al and Owl means another 299 people <laughs> who took an equal part <laughs>
4: Yeah, I think any any papers that I'm on where I'm not first author, I'm somewhere near the bottom because my surname begins with an S, so I'm uh, <laughs> I'm rarely near the top of a paper.
5: Yeah. Um, well, you have to write a book, and then you well then you are the sole author. Quite yes,
4: indeed. <laughs> I think I'm a way off that. I'll have to get an idea for a book first before I write one. So we have the SKA for the radio now, and we have James Webb for the optical and the IR um, coming up. That's all come about in the last 50 years. We've made huge, huge strides in astronomy in 50 years. Where do you think we'll be in another 50?
5: Well, uh, there isn't any more of the electromagnetic spectrum. There are no gaps left. <laughs> so that uh, what we will be doing in 50 years' time is taking full advantage of the different parts of the spectrum, which is now open. All the windows, if you like, are open, mm-hmm. um, which bits will be most developed? That's difficult to say because the square kilometre array uh, will not be operating fully for another... getting on for 10 years. And it will operate for practically the whole of that 50-year span that you mentioned. Mm. And that will be um, doing most of the work that you can in the radio spectrum. Now, there will be some specialised bits... And I suspect that Jodrell will be involved in that with uh, uh, E-Merlin, which we know about, and, uh, it's, and um, maybe it'll be extended, I don't know. Um, optically, we're only just at the beginning of the very large telescopes, the 39-metre uh, the, the uh, European large telescope. That's going to be another... 10 years to be built Mm -hmm. and that will operate certainly for a half century so um, where do we go from here well that's radio, that's light it's jolly difficult to build bigger X-ray and gamma-ray telescopes but um, the ones that we've got there have got a limited life so there will be new X-ray and gamma-ray telescopes for sure it's going to be very difficult to build them much bigger, but uh, uh, they'll be there all right. So the whole of the spectrum will be uh, fully exploited. So gravitational wave astronomy
4: began um, earlier this year with the detection of waves from two coalescing black holes. Yeah. So this is your second book covering the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum, yeah. um, in certainly in popular science, you've written more, but in popular science, this is your second book. You first just focused on radio. So will your
5: third be a
4: gravitational wave astronomy?
5: <laughs> well, I don't know. Book? I think, you know, I'm 93. I can't go on writing books, <laughs> <laughs> much as I enjoy it. Yeah. So I think that's... Fairly unlikely. I will leave that to someone else. Fair enough.
4: It's it's very early days yet, anyway. Even we've only got a handful of sources, and we've still got yes. pulsars. Have still got to detect gravitational yes. waves. As I well, think so. it's
5: pretty difficult, actually. Yeah. Uh, I don't see uh, gravitational waves developing into the same productive branch of astronomy as uh, as other wavelengths. Mm. What it has done is absolutely marvellous. It's um, not only proved. Einstein's uh, general relativity to be correct but it is also shown that there are black holes which are a size range that we never thought about before Mm. and um, well there is a whole range of uh, physics that is proved for us but I don't see it as uh, an object which is going to uh, a, um, a wavelength range or a technique which is going to produce catalogues of millions of sources, Mm. like radio and optical, uh, Gaia, for example, Mm. like all those wonderful telescopes have done for us. Yeah, because
4: sensitivities required would be enormous, really. Yes.
5: I mean, so far, with all this effort, and with those thousand authors... (laughs) They've produced one very clear detection and a second one, which they had to dig out of the the noise. It's it's real enough, but um, that's not the the rate at which an optical telescope can operate. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll bring this to a close. I've enjoyed the interview and I enjoyed writing the book too, I can tell you. But um, it's wonderful to see it actually sitting there on the the table.
4: Yeah, we're looking at two copies sitting on
5: your desk. Yes. Um,
4: And it's available now.
5: It's available now. Um, Oxford University Press have been very good, actually, in helping the production of it. And I think they've done a good job. Mm. Excellent. Well, Eyes
4: on the Sky by Francis Graham Smith is available now from our bookshops. We'll place a link to it in the show notes. It's certainly well worth reading if you want to find out more about everything we've talked about today and a lot more. So all that's left to say then, Sir Graham, is thank you very much for joining us on the
0: Jodcast.
5: Well, thanks. I've enjoyed that.
0: And we will place a link to a book in the show notes. And now on to the odds and ends. So the survey is going to close on the 22nd of July. If you haven't uh, filled in the survey yet please do so right away apparently there's going to be a special prize for one lucky winner of the survey draw
1: yes and i have a little bit of a challenge on that one so in 2010 we had a listener survey um back in may 2010 and um back then we had 229 respondents and currently as of About 15 minutes ago, there were only 167 respondents. So the challenge is, Jodcasters, can you beat 2010?
0: It certainly would be nice to know that we've picked up more listeners over the years as opposed to losing listeners. Please go ahead and fill in that survey if you can.
2: Yep. Don't let the side down, lads. (laughs) (laughs) It's very important that we beat our past selves. (laughs)
0: I kind of related to that too. I just wanted to mention something else from one of the uh, past podcasts. So I produced the April Fool's episode this year. I thought it would be really fun to stick in an encoded message. And as far as I can tell, uh, just about nobody uh, paid attention to a code whatsoever, except for Adam. I certainly
3: did. And for a week, it drove me uh, slightly potty. And then I put the numbers away and stopped <laughs> thinking about it and now I feel much happier within myself.
2: <laughs> have the numbers stopped. The then. numbers have stopped.
3: I I feel like they were some sort of coordinate system, but I'm not sure and George was very adamant to give no clues whatsoever and just laughed whenever I brought it up. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so while Adam continues to slowly recover from his number-related
0: trauma... Yeah, can someone
3: trauma, else sort it out yeah. for me?
7: And...
0: <laughs> uh, go back and listen to the recording. Yeah. And, yeah, see indeed if you can figure out what the numbers are. I did ask...
3: Um, a person who recorded the numbers, if she knew what they were, and she didn't either. So,
0: no, uh, she definitely didn't. I just took. Her you just gave her and the numbers. Okay. Them. <laughs> oh,
3: okay. So she just read out the numbers, and you. Oh, okay. Yes. I oh, that does explain why they were quite so uniform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it certainly helped my productivity it, in the yeah, office. Yeah.
0: Well, the uh, first person who guesses it and has also sends in the address, I think we can... Uh, well, I, I will at least pay to send off uh, some of the Alma coasters that yes. uh, we print out.
2: Oh, yes, the Alma coasters. Yeah. They're the best. They are yes, the best. Those <laughs> Alma coasters are amazing.
0: If you've seen the Alma stand at one of the outreach events, you will have seen our coasters. If you
2: were lucky enough to see with your own eyes the <laughs> Alma coasters.
0: <laughs> I... Oh,
3: yeah.
1: I've been taking them around with me and they keep they keep exiting my bag in random places do you think they're going on little adventures I think so oh I my take God. them on
3: adventures yeah.
1: I took one to Nottingham I'm going to take one to St. Petersburg
3: I yes saying, yeah yeah i will go to
1: the EVN in St. Petersburg I'll mm. take some on the coasters some are going to come live with me in Toronto I'll plant them around strategic
2: locations in St. Petersburg
3: I've taken some to Chile so we're Go, doing quite well We're for the. spreading the, uh, the Alma it,
0: coasters the, around. The, the world. There's also an Alma conference in California, yes, so, so we've these got are North the American coasters COVID. printed by the UK Alma Regional okay. Center node. But uh, there's going to be a much bigger Alma science meeting, including all of the Alma people from all of the international uh, organizations that participate in that. And so we can show off our. Yeah. ALMA. Now,
2: do you think they'll be printing their own coasters?
0: No. No. They'll probably give us free pens or something.
2: <laughs> free pens?
0: pens oh God. Uh, I've got so many pens.
2: I love pens.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny,
3: whenever my girlfriend goes into her handbag to get a pen out, like when we're out, it's always an astronomy pen because it's something that I've picked up at a conference and just discarded around the house.
0: So, moving on, Fiona, what would you like to talk about today?
2: Okay, well, uh, my odd and end today, um, so I did my usual desperate scramble 10 minutes before the show started for an odd and end, and uh, (laughs) and I had a lot of options, but what I decided to talk about um, uh, was a study that I read, which was published in Springer. It's a study that a group of scientists uh, based in Colorado did um, uh, called, But You Don't Look Like a Scientist. Women scientists with feminine appearance are deemed less likely to be scientists. Uh, and it pretty much did exactly what it says in the title. So they took um, a sample, I think, of eighty photographs, forty of men and forty of women, that they pulled from uh, departmental websites of tenure or tenure track um, staff members. Um, so forty men and forty women. They were all white, so that it wouldn't be that the results wouldn't be tempered by people thinking different races were more or less likely to be scientists. So it's um, they were all white, and they were asked. There was a bunch of participants and the participants were all asked to first to rate how feminine they thought each picture looked, whether it was a man or a woman, um, so whether the women looked masculine or feminine, and whether the men looked masculine or feminine. And then they were asked a few other things, like to rate how attractive they thought they were and how likable they thought they were. Um, and then they were asked, "Do you think the person is more likely to be a scientist or a teacher?" And the finding was that for the men, even the more effeminate looking men, it didn't really, there was a slight bias towards thinking the more masculine looking men were scientists. But for the women, uh, there was a very clear uh, trend and that that the more feminine looking women uh, were less likely to be considered to be scientists. They thought it was the people, the participants in the study thought it was less likely that those women were scientists, um, and interestingly, um both men and women were considered equally likely to be scientists um, overall, I think the results found, but the more among the women there was a bias towards the more feminine looking ones uh, that they were not thought of as scientists, so uh see so yeah, I mean I can definitely. Uh, so that's that's really cool to have um, actual empirical evidence um, uh, of of this effect because I've definitely experienced it in my personal life. Um, As have I. Yeah. <laughs> I've had um, what's you know what's a what's a girl like you doing science for? I've had that's no way to find a husband. Um, yeah. yeah. No. I mean, <laughs>
0: they don't understand the male to female. Race I know. That's what Simon. I said I
2: was like, are you joking? It's a fantastic way to find a husband. <laughs> No matter what your persuasion is regards marriage, please pursue careers in science.
1: I agree with that statement. Uh, No
2: matter how effeminate you consider yourself to look, please pursue a career in science. No matter how effeminate you want to look, please pursue a
1: career in science. I feel Um, that your feminineness and your desire to do science are mutually exclusive factors. (laughs) But uh,
2: yeah, no, it's cool because often as a woman, um, when when you say things like, oh yeah, you know, people... People say when you report incidences of hearing stuff like that, people are like, oh, yeah, but that's not really a problem. That probably doesn't happen that much. And uh, well, now now we've got proof. So so there
0: Uh, people haven't done like uh, what uh, at least the staff here have had to do, for example, which is uh, kind of subconscious bias training. I did this anyway. I don't know if Adam did this, but it was an online thing where you watch a video and see various examples. For example, see like uh, uh, this older black guy who walks into like an office uh, wearing his biking gear and it's assumed that he's a courier or not a PhD Uh, in mathematics, for example. On the other hand, he did walk into a business office wearing his biking gear, so... That happens here. There are staff members that do that here.
1: (laughs) I I used to rock up in my biking gear having cycled into Manchester in the rain. I suppose I still
0: thought you were a scientist, no matter what you were dressed as. (laughs) (laughs) You're just more of a soggy scientist. Yes,
1: (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that yes. happens a lot in Manchester. We're often soggy. Yes, <laughs> the waterproof trousers and waterproof fluorescent jacket are the way forwards. Yeah. <laughs> anyway,
0: the uh, uh, as a serious note to all of this discussion, uh, one of potential biases which you uh, didn't address, uh, which may have been present in uh, the review, was age. And so we do know that mm. there has been a bias towards women historically in sciences for a very long time. That's bias is being overcome over time. Uh, that may mean that the number of women who make it into academic positions tend to be uh, younger uh, relative to their male counterparts mm. in a department because it's uh they're going to tend to be more recent hires would this in turn affect how people rank uh people in terms of femininity and in turn bias the results
2: well i think um so i think what you're saying is like the younger you look more or less likely people might be to say well i would
0: say for any given academic department there's probably a greater likelihood because the biases towards women in the past even the recent past like 30 or 40 years ago, mm-hmm. that um, if you look at the older academic staff, they're going to be tend to be more male-dominated than the younger True. academic staff. True.
2: I think in this particular study, um, they um, they do mention age, and I think they tried to choose people who all looked about... that they, they, they didn't have like a sample of people who looked very old and people who looked very young. I think they chose people who were all um, at least sort of looked a similar age group. Um
1: that was something else that actually personally I I have a slight worry about because I look like I'm about twelve. <laughs> it, is. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> and so <laughs> when when people I, I get it when people are in the streets, I had it when I was touring um the uh johnson space center somebody asked me what i wanted to be when i grew up and i was doing my final year of my phd at the time and what oh my god did you tell crazy. him that you
0: want to be an astrophysicist who told him tells uh, this guy what he wants to do
1: <laughs> well he was he was very kind and, and when i said it, i was like oh i'm i'm actually just finishing up my my phd and he was like oh Fantastic. <laughs> so that kind of thing, the age thing, does worry me a little bit.
2: It is a good question, though. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up.
0: <laughs> How many uh, months do you have left in your PhD?
2: George, don't ask me that question. <laughs> Forbidden. We're not talking about it.
3: Soon, then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not soon. La-la-la-la-la. Um. So I was looking around for my Odin end and found uh, an article on uh, some new observations of the Orion Nebula. And that piqued my interest. So these are observations taken with uh, ESO's VLT, the Very Large Telescope, using their Hawk one camera, uh, which works at infrared wavelengths. And um, besides being in the Orion Nebula, which is something that I am interested in, uh, which I'll describe shortly. It also, the the article I was reading used the word oh, preponderance, sorry, um, which was just a great way to describe finding a lot of things they weren't expecting. So they found a preponderance of low mass.
2: Preponderance.
3: Preponderance. I can't say it out no, loud. No, sorry, I'm not correcting you. I'm just <laughs> trying to
2: learn it. Prep-
3: uh, of preponderance low... kids yeah. come on move on
2: preponderance it's a uh, new word for me <laughs>
3: of low mass uh basically brown dwarf stars within the orion nebula so um the orion nebula itself is a very well studied region of, of star formation and um is sort of a test bed for constraining models of how stars form in groups and uh it's used to test a concept known as the stellar initial mass function or the imf um, and this is a function that describes the number of stars of a particular mass you get forming together in a, sting, a single star formation epoch. So if in one period of star formation, you get stars of different mass, but you are less likely to get really massive stars, things that are multiple times the mass of the sun. And then it's it's basically thought to be a bit of a power law, so you get more lower mass things. And then at some point, there's a, a turnover and you start losing, uh, you start having fewer of the little objects However, these new observations have found that after this little dip, when you get to quite low mass, there's another peak where you start getting quite a few um, brown dwarf mass uh, objects, which sort of has interesting implications for how the gas in a big star-forming clump is is divided and how many stars you will get as an end product of a, a period of star formation within a galaxy. It was interesting to me because I used the... The relations that have been derived are, are somewhat based on the Orion Nebula to predict the future population of of stars within a particular cloud, uh, down to something slightly bigger than than these brown dwarfs. But um any changes in the IMF will will affect the result and 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 I believe the IMF is used sort of, I want to say universally throughout astronomy, uh from early periods of star formation in, in submillimeter galaxies, so at the early times of the universe, to uh sure george uses the imf occasionally in his work
0: yes uh, in my uh <laughs> next paper in fact i'm going to have a lengthy discussion on the initial mass function and how that affects how we measure the rate at which stars are forming not because i want to but because i think i'm <laughs> going to have to
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so yeah that that it was interesting to me and and if you can go and find these images so if you sort of well i'll i'll, I'll Provide links to to the paper and to the and to the news article. I found um, the images from the VLT are absolutely beautiful as well. So,
2: George, I'm sure you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want to publish my paper, and okay. I know that if I need a discussion on the initial mass function in the paper. Um, yeah, so what I'm basically doing is I'm. Uh, testing multiple different ways to measure star formation versus uh, techniques using uh, ALMA to measure star formation. So one of the interesting surprises, which many people didn't think about, was that ALMA can uh, detect the uh, emission from hydrogen gas that's been photoionized from uh, photoionized by very hot very blue stars with very short lifespans. So if you see that hydrogen gas, you know that stars had to have formed there recently. And to translate the rate at which you're forming stars into the amount of that light that you see, you have to know the initial mass function, because uh, you're only seeing the most massive stars. You're not seeing all of the stars. Mm -hmm. And this has been a topic of debate actually, but I think everybody's settled on the same formula. But I'm still going to have to go into a little bit of discussion on it if I want to publish my paper. Well, now, I do have enough. the option of giving up publishing. And hmm. just uh, potentially uh, retreating into a cave somewhere in North Wales.
2: I mean, it's always an option available to all of us, really. You know, it's uh, something I'm um, considering at the moment because I'm writing a paper. And uh, it's, 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 I, I definitely had a retreating into a cave moment yesterday. Oh, I wait until you like, get the referee's report. I was just <laughs> like, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this is just my supervisor's corrections. And I was like, yeah. ma- maybe I don't need to write the paper. Maybe, maybe I'll just go your, go. your
0: supervisor is trying to help you because you'd oh, no, rather have those comments from your supervisor.
2: They're wonderful comments. It's just there came a point where I thought, "Oh my God, this is so difficult, and so time-consuming, and I'm tired, and I want to go home." And, no. and I did consider, and I did strongly consider going to live in a cave.
0: So, returning now to our discussion on actual astronomy and not random show comments or sociological studies or the intricacies uh, of publishing, yes. our
2: preponderances. <laughs>
0: Here are James and Ian with Ask an Astronomer.
6: For this month's Ask an Astronomer, we are joined by Dr. Ian McDonald, who's joined us many times before in the past, and is actually my academic supervisor, so I have to be very nice to him today. As always, we have three listener-submitted questions. The first one is from Penny. We recently watched The Martian and were generally impressed by the physics accuracy compared to a lot of movies, but one thing stood out as potentially impossible so I should probably stop listening now if you particularly bother about spoilers from this film. But right at the end, when Matt Damon is trying to get to the spaceship, he gets to it by puncturing his spacesuit and using the jet of air to propel him to his colleagues. Wouldn't the altitude change need a lot more energy than you would get from a small jet of air to raise him to a high orbit and meet the commander?
8: I liked this question. It gave me an excuse to watch YouTube
6: at work. During this
8: very detailed research, I found that in the movie, the velocity difference between Matt Damon and the spaceship that he's trying to get to is about 11 meters per second, or about 25 miles an hour. And that's about the speed that you get from jumping out a third-story window, so it's already not looking terribly good from a physics point of view. It's also this 11 meters per second that determines whether he can get there or not. And it's just a case of working out whether he's got the energy from the escaping gas, and whether that's greater than the energy that he needs to get to this speed. And anyone who's done high school physics probably has hazy memories of equals half mv squared. Now, surprisingly, googling the mass of Matt Damon didn't re- didn't return any useful results, so we'll assume that he weighs about 70 kilos. Now, modern spacesuits weigh anything from 10 kilos to 178 kilos, depending on their intended use. The ones that are used in the film seem quite lightweight, so let's go with about 30 kilos for the mass of the spacesuit. And that's 100 kilos for the mass of the spacesuit, plus the esteemed Mr. Damon. And half mv squared then tells us that he needs... 6,050 joules of energy to get him up to the right speed. So how much energy can he get from the air he's carrying? Oh, that mainly depends on the amount of air that he has. The air will come out of the puncture at about the speed of sound, but most extravehicular spacesuits use reduced pressures. So I reckon that he might get about maybe 26 joules for every litre of air that he loses. And using this conversion, might probably needs about 230 litres of air to get him up to the right velocity. Now, NASA astronauts typically carry a few hundred litres of air with them during spacewalks, but the suits they use tend to be a lot more bulky than the one he's wearing in the film, because of the need to store this extra oxygen. So, Matt Damon probably could make it, but only if he has a lightweight suit and heavily pressured oxygen tanks. Otherwise, he's probably a little bit doomed. So my verdict? Well, it might work, but I wouldn't want
6: to bet my life on it. Thank you, Ian. I'm always impressed with the amount of questions we get in that can be resolved using, you know, high school or A-level physics. It's really impressive. Um, Our next question comes from Mark Weaver. The great red spot on Jupiter would seem to be shrinking. How well understood is this? At its current rate of decline, how long would it take before it disappeared?
8: Well, Jupiter's great red spot is a hurricane-like storm, and it's been present on Jupiter for at least two centuries. In the last hundred years, it's shrunk to about half of its previous size, so it's conceivable that it might disappear within the next hundred years or so. Or it might grow again and persist for longer, we don't really know. Like on Earth, storms on giant planets tend to be fairly transient features, and they form and decay. Saturn has a long-lasting hexagonal spot in one pole, and the storm on the planet in 2011 encircled the entire planet over a few months. While Uranus showed a very bland disk when Voyager flew past it, more recent Hubble Space Telescope images showed bright and dark spots on the planet, and these change over months and years. Neptune famously showed a dark blue spot when Voyager passed it, but Hubble has failed to image it again, and so that's probably a fairly short-lived storm. So in our solar system, Jupiter seems fairly unique in having long-lived storms. What makes storms in Jupiter especially noticeable are the strong colour changes that occur in the planet's upper atmosphere, which gives great contrast to these storms. And this, and the relatively large size of Jupiter seen from Earth, make it easy to track these storms, and they have been tracked since the discovery of the telescope. Now, the longevity of Jupiter storms is, at least partially, down to its rapid rotation. A day on Jupiter lasts less than 10 hours, and the different latitudes rotate at very different rates. And this differential rotation allows shear forces to build up and create storms, a bit like permanent whirlpools can form on Earth when currents interact. Now, there's many storms on Jupiter, but the Great Red Spot is by far the biggest, and it seems to get its energy from cannibalising the little storms so it should persist as long as it can find a ready diet of storms to eat. In May 2008, a little red spot formed on Jupiter, but it was only a few months later that it was cannibalised by the Great Red Spot. Another feature, called Oval BA, turned red in 2005, and it's now a sizable fraction of the Great Red Spot's size. The two storms pass each other every couple of years, and so far Oval BA hasn't been eaten, but it might only be a matter of time. If it does get swallowed by the Great Red Spot, that could extend the Great Red Spot's lifetime significantly. Now, weather prediction is quite hard on Earth, where we basically understand what's going on. So I think it's safe to say that we don't really know what the future of the Great Red Spot is. But it'll probably be quite fun finding out.
6: So I suppose a good follow-up question here is, do you expect Juno to um, help us understand these features more? Well, Juno is going
8: to do a lot of imaging of uh, Jupiter's surface while it's there. And that's going to give us quite uh, unprecedented detail of the um, storms that are going on on Jupiter. Um, and so that, combined with uh, ground-based and space-based imagery from Earth, will tell us a lot more about how these storms form and interact.
6: OK, thank you. So the final question here is really Ian's specialty um, and comes from Charles. My question concerns the transformation of our sun into a red giant. What will happen to the Earth-Moon system?
8: Well, I've been looking at the last phases of stellar evolution, particularly the evolution of sun-like stars, for the last 10 years. So I'm in a good position to tell you exactly how much we don't know about what's going to happen. (laughs) What we do know is that in about 7.5 billion years' time, the sun will run out of nuclear fusion, uh, run out of nuclear fuel. And as it burns the last of this fuel, it will increase in size by a factor of maybe 100 to 200 times, before becoming a planetary nebula and fading away as a white dwarf. And We know that during this process, the expanding Sun will engulf Mercury and Venus, and they'll likely be destroyed. Mars and the outer planets will probably survive, and they'll probably remain in orbit around the dead Sun, unless their orbits interact with each other and one gets thrown out. But the Earth is just on the boundary between these two zones, and we don't know whether it will be engulfed, or whether it will survive um, to orbit to the dead Sun. For the Earth's future, there are two competing forces that will determine our fate. Firstly, we've got tidal drag, and that pulls us towards the Sun. And secondly, we've got the solar wind, and that reduces the Sun's mass and makes the Earth's orbit expand further away from the Sun. Now, we don't have enough information to work out which of these effects will win. The strength of the solar wind in particular is very crucial to this factor, and it sets the maximum size and lifetime of the Sun. If we do manage to escape destruction by the Sun, the Earth and the Moon will look very different. They will still be recognisable as the Earth-Moon system. Although the Earth and Moon are moving further apart because of what the tides create, they do so quite slowly. And over recent geological time, the Moon has been moving 22 kilometres away from the Earth every million years. And as it does so, it takes energy from the Earth's spin. So our day gets longer by about 12 seconds every million years. But this evolution will only continue as long as the Earth has oceans, which are what provides the tidal damping force. And the oceans are predicted to boil off the Earth in about one or two billion years' time, as the Sun gets hotter. So the Earth and the Moon will still be recognisable as they are today, although our day will be a few hours longer, and the Moon will be fractionally further away. Although the physical Earth may survive, it will probably undergo a runaway greenhouse effect, like Venus has today, except more severe. And this could heat up the surface of the Earth to over a thousand degrees Celsius, turning the Earth's surface into a magma ocean and erasing the surface of the Earth we see at present. So there will be nothing for future civilizations to find of us, except the probes that we've sent out into the outer solar system. The picture will be even more dismal if we're pulled the other way, into the Sun. The first thing that will happen is that the heat from the Sun will transform the Earth and the Moon into balls of liquid rock. And once the Earth and the Moon are enveloped by the Sun's outermost atmospheric layers, drag forces will gradually force the Moon to spiral in towards the Earth, now, since the Moon and the Earth are going to be bowls of magma at this point, the collision of the Moon into the Earth will be a fairly sedate process, although you might want to stick around for the magma tsunami, which will be pretty spectacular. And once the Earth-Moon conglomerate has been absorbed by the Sun, the magma oceans will probably boil away into nothing as it's dragged further into the Sun's atmosphere. However, it's not certain that it would be completely destroyed. The outer regions of the red giant Sun will be very tenuous, And we're now finding the ghosts of planets around white dwarf stars that we think were one time orbiting inside the red giant stars that they came from. And that may be that the Earth will still rise, phoenix-like, out of the dying sun, and orbit the cooling white dwarf sun as a rocky cinder until the end of time. Either way, that's pretty dismal into the Earth's history.
6: But on a positive note, at least for a while, Manchester will be quite a dry place for once, so you got that to look forward to.
8: Well, it's certainly going to improve the climate around here. <laughs> Thank you very much,
0: Ian. And now on to feedback. So we don't have any post or email, uh, but we do have a couple of Facebook uh, entries, don't we?
2: Uh, yes, we do. Um, Teresa on Facebook says, You guys are the best. You do a wonderful job with your podcast. Thank you so much for sharing it with the world. Well, thank you, Teresa. That's lovely. On Facebook, we also have a comment from Mark Shaw about a book that he's found um, by the scientist George Gamow, who um, uh, was one of the pioneers working on the Big Bang Theory. And uh, he was he was a funny guy, actually, um, George Gamow, uh, because he he published a paper about it um, with two other uh, scientists um, called Alper. And what was the other one? Was it? Beta. Beta, yeah, yeah. So uh, so it was a paper by Alper, Beta and Gamma, which uh, he got a great kick out of because there are very few jokes in science.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to go with them when you can. Well, there was that one guy who, he was the single author on a paper but wrote the entire paper as, we did this, we did that. And the <laughs> That's <referee's>, so sad. <laughs> the referee's comment was, well, there's only one of you, you need to change everything to, I did this, I did that. So instead he added his hapster <laughs> as an author. <laughs> Oh my god that's awesome and i do believe that that is a legitimate i just have this amazing image of this this
2: man doing science with his trusty hamster hamster at his side (laughs) um you know like pinky in the brain um (laughs) (laughs) but anyway anyway coming back to george gamoff uh this is interesting to me uh because i actually have a copy of the book that mark is talking about i have it here in the studio uh it's very old he bought it in July 1968, and it cost 13 shillings and sixpence. Um, and the book is entitled Mr. Tompkins by George Gamow. And it's a, it's a really funny and cute little book that George Gamoff wrote to explain scientific concepts to uh, lay people. And it uses, um, uh, to, to do this, it uses the experiences of the fictitious Mr. Tompkins, who gets up one day and finds himself in a world where the effects of special relativity are greatly enhanced and so uh for example um you know finds himself let's see here we go there's all kinds of situations in which he's watching people on roundabouts shrinking and going back in time and he's he, or is he on a train and then he's looking at the window at things getting shorter or longer and uh it's uh, it's it's full of cute little diagrams and uh and pictures and it's very kind of uh nineteen fifties. It's uh... a
1: <laughs> This is awesome and I need this in my life. So yeah. I am going it's amazing to go and find a copy. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing book. It's really
2: fantastic. It's got all these cute little drawings um of uh Mr Tompkins uh finding himself in uh all kinds of uh strange situations and playing games like quantum billiards and <laughs> and uh, um yeah so uh so yeah my grandfather gave me this book um when I started when I started doing physics at university um uh my my grandfather was a was a scientist also uh he he was a fantastic man and uh and yeah, he gave me a copy of this book, and I always thought, you know, I'll hang on to this. This will come in very useful to me one day, and so I kept it by my desk, and uh, now here we are talking about it in the podcast. So uh, so yeah, Mark Shaw, um, you'll be happy to know that, uh, that I have in fact read this book.
0: <laughs> there are other books out there like that too. So uh, one book which I have is uh, Alan Lightman's Einstein's Dreams which is a bit more surreal where a lot of chapters discuss sort of uh, alternative uh, takes on physics. Uh, so Alan Lightman, uh, if people don't know, is a uh, physics researcher. I don't know the specifics of what he does, but I do have like another astronomy textbook by him written with George. Ribicki. Is that
2: Rubicky and Lightman? Yes. Oh that... my God, that book! That book is hard.
0: So George Rubicky and Owen Lightman wrote a book called "Ray of Processes in Astrophysics," which discusses a lot of the different ways that radiation can be produced. So radiation uh, in the form of blackbody radiation, radiation from thin ionized gas such as free-free emission. Uh, radiation from relativistic moving uh, electrons, called which produces synchrotron emission. But Leitman also wrote a uh, separate fiction book called Einstein's Dreams, like I mentioned before, and that has more surreal stuff in it, such as, um, well, the one chapter which stands out the most in my mind is What If Time Was Three-Dimensional? And so you actually have uh, this uh, story in one of the chapters which describes what happens to uh, the main character uh, when he moves in three different time dimensions and, like, three different things happen in his life uh, based on one original starting point in time. It's interesting to know the game. I actually wrote in a book like that first, though. Uh,
2: uh, yeah, no, a lot of people don't know that.
3: As an aside just because uh, Fiona reminded me of it when she was saying that this book describes special relativity um, quite well. Uh, I was introduced to a game while I was at a conference. It's an online game called Velocity Raptor. (laughs) And um, if you want to have a go at seeing what special relativity is like, in inverted commas, uh, give that a Google or we'll put it in the show notes. Um, Basically, you're a raptor that travels through little levels and the speed of light changes. So different special relativity effects happen as you move through the levels and uh it's quite interesting to see <laughs> i found it quite informative um it was at a conference where that was appropriate to be discussed i wasn't slacking off at the back or anything oh, good to know
0: adam on twitter uh thanks for retweets and follows And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
1: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
3: On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
1: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash
0: jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith for the interview. The editor was... Benjamin Shaw, and the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time,
7: Jug